So let's open up in prayer before we look to God's word. Heavenly Father, we can only call you Father because what Jesus have done. When we think about who you are and all of your perfections and holiness, and we also are aware of how frequently we rebel against you, we live as though we don't need you. Lord, we know that we, we are so not deserving of your, your grace and your love toward us. But we are so thankful that you had a plan even before the world, world began to, to bring all things under Jesus Christ. You had a plan to send a saviour into the world so that we could be reconciled to you, that we could have peace with God. Uh, Lord, as we continue to look at uh, your big plan for the world in which we live, and we see this central focus upon Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we might see Jesus clearly and as we see him clearly, we might love him more dearly. Lord, that we might be just overwhelmed with what you have done to provide for us. And the abundant blessings that come, not because of what we have achieved, but because what you have done for us in Christ. So help us not just to hear things to learn, Help us to see you and your plan for the world and for us as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the fifth of, in terms of a seven-part series. We're going through an overview of the Bible. We've called it His Story. But by doing that, we're not just doing a, a timeline of, of biblical events. Our goal is to see how the Bible, even though it's 66 books, about 40 authors over 1,500 to 2,000 years, presents one cohesive, unified story, that it all fits together, it all heads towards a particular trajectory. In particular, it's a book about God's work in the world and more specifically focused on God's dealings with mankind within the world and particularly dealings with regards, we've talked about the theme being from Bible start to finish being of kingdom, of God as the rightful king Desiring to have a people for himself, in his place, under his rule, and because he is the good king, to be under his rule is the perfect place of blessings. Now, it's no surprise that all of these plans which God has centres on Jesus. Because God tells us that was his plan for all time in Ephesians 1.10, was to unite all things under Christ. Today, when we, when we focus specifically on the coming of Jesus... It's kind of like when you're working on a jigsaw puzzle. You know how sometimes you're working and you get entirely stuck and then much to your frustration, someone comes along, they just randomly pick up a bit, whack it in there, and then all of a sudden it's easy to go from there. And Jesus liked that bit. It's the bit that puts everything together that has come before but also points and prepares for the future. We've used that jigsaw puzzle analogy throughout the series that seeing God's big picture of what God's doing as one unified story is like the box of a jigsaw puzzle. Not only does it show how everything within it contributes to one whole cohesive picture, but it shows us how each of those things fit together and work together. With Jesus front and centre being at the very core of Jesus of God's plan. So... What we're looking at this morning, we're going to look at the story so far. So if you've missed the whole series, you'll get a very um, quick overview of where we've come so far. And today we're looking at kingdom come in the arrival of Jesus. 
And we've been talking about kingdom in terms of three things, about having a people, place and rule and blessing. And we'll talk about how Jesus is the fulfilment of each one of those three things we've seen along the way. So our story so far, we began at the beginning of the Bible, good place to start. God, by nature, establishes himself as the ruler and the king of all things because if he creates everything, he owns it and he is the rightful ruler. It's right that we render him honour and praise. And we see the pattern of what kingdom should look like at the beginning where God has a people for himself, Adam and Eve, placed into his place, which was the Garden of Eden. And because God is the good and perfect king, to be under his rule is a place of blessing And they experience perfect relationships with God, with each other, and with the creation. And everything continued to be wonderful blessing for them. As long as they acknowledge he's the king, he's the ruler, to whom we belong, to whom is worthy of all honour and obedience. Until that moment came when in an act of treason they decided, I'm going to be the ultimate ruler. I'm going to be the ultimate authority. I'm going to decide what I want to do. And they take from the tree that God says, do not eat from that tree or you will surely die. And as they stepped outside from underneath God's rule, we go from the pattern to a kingdom that has perished, where God's people is no longer Adam and Eve, but nobody. Where God's place, they're no longer in the, the Garden of Eden, they're actually placed outside of the garden because of their disobedience. And because under God's rule, they've stepped out of his rule, they're under, under his curse as a result. But throughout this series, what we see is even at the depths of human rebellion and failure, God's promises continue to go on. Genesis 3.15, we see the first gospel promise that one of the descendants of the woman would crush the serpent, who would reverse and undo the work of evil. With a bit of up and down, we eventually arrived with the promised kingdom and the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Promises of a people, of nation and blessing where God's people were going to be Abraham's offspring. In God's place, the promised land of Canaan and a promise of blessing both to Israel and to the nations. Which as we look through that, we saw how how Paul picks up on those promises to Abraham in in Galatians 3.16 says, they were not just two offspring, referring to many, but referring to one. And all of this promise pointing to and finds its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Then we walk towards a kingdom prepared. Now, if kingdom's got to do with God having a people, he needs to again. After you see, begin the book of Exodus, you see them not looking like God's people, not in God's place. And God calls them out of Egypt, out of slavery underneath Pharaoh. And he says to Moses, when I bring you out of Egypt, you will serve me on this mountain. So he brings them out of a kingdom where they're serving Pharaoh to serve and be under God's rule. So in the kingdom prepared, again, God's people of the Israelites, the place, you've got the temporal dwelling of the tabernacle and and as they wander around in the wilderness. And because God's law is an expression of of his character and his will, it was blessing to be in obedience to his law, as we see in Deuteronomy 28. The blessings that come for living under his blessings and rules, uh, but also the curses uh, for disobedience. But when you talk kingdom, it kind of helps to have kings involved somewhere, doesn't it? And just as it was foretold in Deuteronomy 17, when they entered the land, they would indeed ask for a king. But even before that, Genesis 49.10 spoke about how kings would continue to come from the line of Judah 
until such point the one to whom the kingdom belong comes, then he will have an everlasting kingdom and will have the obedience of the nations. So they were kind of looking forward and, and hoping for this. We see initially Saul, who gets rejected, and then David. And there are moments under different kings where it seems to be headed in the right direction, where there is blessing, there's peace in the land. So in the partial kingdom, we've got the Israelites in the land, God's rule being expressed through both the law, the judges and the kings, because the judge's role and the king's role was to be a representative for God, to enforce and to rule according to the laws in which God had given, not to stand as an authority to themselves. But as good as things looked under David, the prophet Nathan made it very clear to him, you're not that king. You're not the one to who we were expecting. And so through the prophet Nathan, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, is told that one of David's descendants would have an everlasting and eternal kingdom. Then we moved on. After the death of Solomon, there was a decline, split into two kingdoms. You've got the Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, the north eventually gets taken captive because of their disobedience by the Assyrians and the south uh, by the Babylonians. But during the message of the prophets who prophesied both before, during and after the exile, we saw speaking of each of these kingdom things, of people, place and rule and blessing. Of people are speaking of a new Israel, of all nations, in Isaiah 49 verse 6, where salvation would go to the ends of the earth. Of a new place. Ezekiel 40 to 48, speaking of a, a new temple. Isaiah 65 and 66, speaking of a, a new heavens and a new earth. And as underneath the Old Testament, the Old Law, the Old Covenant, was the rule of God and his blessing, also through the prophet Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, the promise of a new covenant. A new covenant that was not just about laws and not just about um, things that would cover for sins, but things that would deal with sin once and for all, and the God's laws would be written on our heart. So as we came to the end of last week, we said, now it sounds like we're kind of heading towards a major climax. All this revelation of new things coming, new and better things coming. And pretty much everything we've spoken to up until this point points to the coming of Jesus Christ, finds its end goal, finds its fulfilment in Jesus Christ. Everything from that promise back to the one who'd be the serpent crusher who'd reverse the works of evil in the world to the king from the line of Judah to whom would belong the obedience of all nations to the promise of a descendant of David who would who'd reign forever to the promise of Malachi 3.1 that the Lord would come to his temple. All of these find their final end goal. We see that everything we've been going along the way has been heading towards a particular path and this is what it's been pointing to. Which isn't a surprise. If we know that God had a plan to unite all things around Jesus, it's not a surprise that every step along the way has been pointing and heading in that direction. But as we come to the Gospels, every single one of the Gospel accounts starts with a clear picture of this Jesus coming on the scene is a big deal. Big things are happening. The very first sentence of the New Testament, which we looked about last week, we saw the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, first of all, you just think, oh, genealogy, so what? But he picks up on two. 
He picks up on two to whom major promises have been made in our journey so far. He picks up on two things. A descendant of Abraham. Remember, there's been promises that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. But not only is he being pointing to this is the one who's doing that, also the son of David, who one of his offspring was promised would have an eternal and everlasting kingdom. Look at Mark as it begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So you've got the connection to Abraham and David in Matthew. Mark says, This is the Son of God. This is the Lord whom the prophet Isaiah had spoken out. In Luke's Gospel, we see introduced how, how Luke has compiled an orderly account, having thoroughly investigated all of the material regarding this Jesus. And let's not forget the famous beginnings of John chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glorious, the only Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. All four Gospels, this is significant, Jesus coming onto the sign, because this is the centre of God's plans in this world. Jesus himself is very well aware that he's part of God's kingdom plan. Look at the way he begins in Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See what he says? Is, the time is fulfilled. The time that you've been waiting for, and everything you've been hoping for, all your expectations, all the promises, now this is right at hand in the coming of the king. Everything's been pointing this direction because Jesus is the centre of the plan. As Paul explains it in this way in 2 Corinthians 1.20, As surely as God is faithful, our word has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is wise through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So everything we've been working for, all of the promises of God, I've often joked to say that the Greek word for all means all, and does mean all, all the promises of God find their amen and their yes in Jesus. So we see this is the fulfillment, this is the climax of God's plan. But before we kind of dig into that a little bit, we need to understand this concept of, of what the Bible talks about, shadows and types. Now we all know what a shadow is, kids get fascinated by it, like you've got the sun shining on you and, and then on the ground, depending on what angle the sun's coming on, is a rough outline and you can make out what it is based on the shape of it, so it's not the real thing, but you can tell by looking at a shadow what it is representing. And then you've got the idea of a type, not a word we use too frequently, but we do use the word prototype quite a bit, don't we? Like if it be in a car show or a, or a technology thing, the word proto just means first. And, the, and the, a prototype is usually something which is a physical actual thing that's not the final product, but it's designed to give you a glimpse of what's coming in the future. And the, and the biblical authors use both of these terms to speak about all of the things in our Old Testament. 
Like a shadow isn't the reality, but it shows you a picture of the reality. And a prototype isn't the final thing, but it shows you a glimpse of what is future and coming. But all of the things that we've seen up until this point are designed, while they are genuine real things like a prototype, they're not just myths and fairy tales, but they find their fullest expression, their fullest meaning, their fullest goal in the coming of Jesus. The book of Hebrews calls them shadows and copies to which the reality or the substance belongs to Jesus. Well, Paul speaks this way in Colossians chapter 2. He says, Let no one pass judgment on you with regards to food or drink or with regards to a festival or new moon or Sabbath, for these are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, These things, they are shadows, but the reality has come. The reality comes to Christ. And because God has a central plan that centers on Jesus, it's no surprise that everything along the way was designed to point people in that direction. This is not a comprehensive list, but here's just a list, I'm not going to have time to go into detail, of things which pointed forward to a fulfillment in Jesus. Adam, Abraham's offspring, Moses, Exodus, Passover, sacrifices, feasts and festivals, the law, the Sabbath, the promised land, Israel, the tabernacle or temple, and the priesthood. All of them real things, all of them having a very significant point plan in their, in their context, but also all having a fuller meaning and a fuller pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. And throughout the series as we've been talking about kingdom as being people, place and rule and blessing, we're going to look at how Jesus is the fulfilment of God's people, God's place and God's rule and blessing. Now at first, it's going to sound a bit weird, isn't it? Jesus being God's people. But let me tell you what I mean by that. As we've gone through this series, we've talked about God's people, God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And for the most of the Old Testament, the, the people was defined as being the people of, people of Israel. Uh, there, were, there were exceptions where there are other people from outside of Israel who are in the, the household of God. But Jesus and the New Testament authors make an intentional effort to make the connection between Old Testament Israel and how it pointed to a greater and, and a truer fulfilment in Jesus himself. Won't be able to do this in full detail, but one from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until, until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that thing where he says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet comes from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Where it was actually speaking about national Israel being taken out of Egypt to be God's own people. Yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament author says this was to fulfill... Jesus being taken to Egypt to escape from Herod. Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as a vine. Psalm 80 verse 8 speaks about the vine whom God pulled out of Egypt to be his own. You've got Isaiah chapter 5 where you've got the rebuke against the vineyard. You've got Jeremiah 2 amongst many others. And that's the background to which Jesus speaks in John 15 when he says, I am the true vine. It wasn't just that vineyards was a helpful analogy. He was picking up saying, I am the true fulfilment of what that pointed to. Israel was called God's son or God's firstborn. 
both which Jesus picks up and claims to be the final end of God's true son, God's true firstborn. You see, in the wandering of the wilderness where Israel failed, Jesus was in the wilderness and showed us what it means to be in total obedience to God. And as Romans 2 and 3 make it pretty clear, being God's people has never been about genetic connection, connection to a particular nation, But the, the connection Paul makes in, in Romans is connection is people of God is in connection with the true vine. In connection with Jesus, the King of Kings, the one who Genesis 49.10 said will come the obedience of all nations. The true seed of Abraham through whom all nations will be blessed. So in the coming of Jesus we see the coming of the kingdom where God is, presents Jesus as God's people. And what is the term that we often use in the scriptures for those who are Christians? It says those who are in Christ. We are God's people through our connectedness to the true Jesus Christ. But what about God's place? So if you thought it was weird, the idea of speaking of Jesus as God's people, God's place has got to sound even weirder. As we've gone through the Old Testament, we've seen God's place primarily expressed in terms of the promised land, but also regards to tabernacle and temple. Once again, we see that these are shadows and types in which the reality and fulfilment came to Christ. When you're looking at the promised land, the Old Testament continually speaks of the promised land of entering into God's rest. In Exodus 33, when Moses is so uncertain about taking the people into the land, God says, I, presence, will go with you and I will give you rest. In Joshua 1.13, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, saying, the Lord your God is providing you with a place of rest, and I will give you this land. Psalm 95.11, they did not enter, because of their disobedience, they did not enter into the rest. And that's Jesus' background. When Jesus says in John 11, 20, Matthew 11.28, come to me, I will give you rest. Everything that was pictured by the promised land finds its fulfilment in Christ. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this too. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is the end goal of the promised land. Likewise, he's the end goal of the tabernacle or the temple. We've read already from John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Literally, as the word became flesh and tabernacle amongst us. Both the tabernacle and temple, their goal was to serve as a tangible presence of God's presence amongst his people. Now, as we saw last week in Ezekiel 10, God's presence left the temple and there was no sign of it returning in the Old Testament. We had the wonderful promise of Malachi 3.1 where it says, and the Lord will return to his temple, which is picked up in the New Testament and ascribed to Jesus. But then we see a picture in Ezekiel 40 to 48 that described a far grander picture of a temple than anything that was ever standing. 
And both Jesus and the New Testament authors want us to know these were shadows and a copy. The reality, what it's pointing to, is Christ. Other than the Jesus tabernacle amongst us, he makes regular references to himself as being the temple and greater than the temple. In Matthew 12, 6, when he's engaging with people and he says, something greater than the temple is here, speaking of himself. Or famously in John 2, verses 19 to 21, when he says, destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. And John explains us very clearly that he's speaking about the temple of his body. The presence of God's temple and God's tangible presence in this world doesn't mean it's come to an end because Jesus has returned to the right hand of the Father. As you go through the rest of your Old Testament, Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians, speaking of the church as the temple of God. By nature, by us being in Christ, the indwelling presence of Christ in us by his Spirit, the church is God's dwelling place in this world. And by church, I don't mean the building, I mean the people. And I think that comes with a bit of a challenge, doesn't it? To think that God has called us as his people to be the tangible expression of his presence in the world. And I wonder when we look back to, back in Ezra chapter 3, remember when they rebuilt the temple and the old, there was people rejoicing and the old man was weeping saying, it's nothing like the former glory we had before. Wouldn't it be sad if people looking through our Christian history looked at our ear and said, it's nothing like what came before it? The church, that is, the people. My prayer is that globally the church would be a glorious sign of God's presence. That God would be so at work in our lives and transforming us that to engage with God's people is to somehow encounter the true and living God. So we see Jesus as God's people, God's place. What about rule and blessing? Throughout our Old Testament sections, We've been talking about God's rule through the covenant and the laws that were given. But we saw last week in Jeremiah 31 the promise of a new and better covenant where sin was not just covered, but sin was dealt with once and for all, where sins would be forgiven and forgotten. And we're left without any doubt that Jesus is the one who brings in that new covenant. In Luke 22, when he has his disciples gathered there at the Last Supper, when he passes the cup, he says, this is my, the blood of the new covenant. So not only do we have a new covenant, a means by under his rule and the provision that he's given to deal with our sin, by which we have abundant blessing. But we also have the long-awaited king of Genesis 49.10, the one who would belong to the obedience of all nations, the one that was promised that he, the descendant of David who would sit on his throne forever. And Peter picks up and speaks about this in Acts chapter 2 in his Pentecost sermon, saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says, know how one was promised to be David's descendants who'd sit on his throne? He spoke about Christ and his resurrection to be seated to the right hand of God. And then to follow up, to confirm it again, just a few verses later, verse 36, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord meaning ruler, Christ meaning anointed king. 
And it's no surprise. This is where God's plan was always headed towards. We're not shocked when Jesus, raised from the dead, comes to his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. While we had in the reading in the bit before Ray accidentally flicked a bit too far and missed the first part of the reading, where all rulers are underneath Christ, that he's the head of all rule and authority. Philippians 2 makes the same thing, that every knee will bow, he's given the name above all names. And throughout this series that we made strong connection to be under God's rule is a place of deepest and rich blessings. Which is why Paul can say to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if you want some more Greek insight, the word for every means every. In Christ we have every spiritual blessing. In relation to the King, the one to whom we belong, the one whom we were created for. But just like every stage beforehand, the blessing comes as we live under his rule. But there's also judgment for those who don't recognise him as the rightful king and the rightful ruler. Probably no clearer picture of this than John 3 verse 36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. Jesus now, who is exalted to the right hand of the Father, will one day return where we will either give thanks that he has borne our punishment, we have trusted in him that our, our debts have been paid, or we will ultimately take the punishment upon ourselves. The picture of Philippians 2 is every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess they will recognise that this is the true king, this, this is the one to whom we were created for, this is the one whom we deserve or worthy honour and praise. But we need to be prepared before then. It makes sense that every step along the way finds its end goal here in Jesus. Because that's what God said was his plan, was to unite all things in Christ. It makes sense everything's moving in that direction. We saw in the reading from Colossians, everything is created through him and for him. But even as Jesus came the first time, wasn't the end of everything. It was sort of the answer to everything they'd expected and hoped and all of the promises of God. But he also brought more of the unfolding plan of God, spoke of a future, final and perfected kingdom, which is still to come. But it also presents Jesus as the one who prepares the way, who gives us access and entrance into that perfect and final kingdom. Remember Jesus' words, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Well, I am the door. Jesus is the one, but we can come reconcile to him. We can trust in him that his death has dealt with the problem of our sin. That he is our rightful ruler, that we want to live in obedience with him. We want to live under his rule, enjoy his blessings forevermore. And now is the time to be prepared for that. Because the day when the king returns, that will be too late. When we went through the Old Testament, we said probably the peak of Israel's history was the first part of Solomon's reign, where they were in the land, they were in God's place, they were God's people, they had peace, they had prosperity. But all of that was kind of temporary and so fragile, wasn't it? 
And all of it went downhill very, very quickly. But in coming of the perfect King Jesus, dealt perfectly with our greatest enemy, the enemy of sin, death and Satan. There's nothing partial in what he's providing for us. Nothing insecure, nothing fumbly or like building on sand. That to come to be his people by trusting in Christ, you are his people. If you're in his place, you're in Christ. And under his rule is wonderful blessing now, but even more so when he returns again and we'll see the beautiful, perfected and final kingdom. And because that is such good news, it's no surprise that next week the topic we're going to look at is the proclaimed kingdom. This is the kingdom that is such good news. This is the king that we were created for. This is the kingdom that we long for. This is the good news for every single person ever born. And so between his first coming and his second, this is the kingdom that we are to proclaim. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did send Jesus and that it was not a a plan B, but it was a key and central part of your plan even before the foundation of the world. Lord, we thank you that even all of the thing, your dealings with mankind beforehand are not irrelevant to us just because they happened before Jesus. But Lord, they help us to understand even more not only our own nature, but also the nature of Jesus and why he needed to come and what he is like and what he promises is still more for our future. Lord, we pray that as we rightly understand you as the one to whom we belong, the one who's worthy of all of our honour and praise and obedience. That we might present to the world a Jesus who is worth following. Who is supreme, who is the, the very centre of our own lives. If he's at the centre of your plan and if we're yours, he should be the centre of ours. Lord, I pray that you challenge us and you work within us. Change us to be like Christ. Change us as a, as a community of believers that when people come into our midst, they might see something of the presence of the, of the true and living God. Lord, we're not here just to play games until we die and then to enjoy you. Lord, we want to enjoy you now. And we want to bring others in to enjoy you and to know you as well. And we pray that you work in us and through us to that effect. In Jesus' name, amen.